2: On November 2nd, 1973, a girl told a Hillsborough County deputy that a few weeks earlier, she'd seen two suspicious men in the woods where John disappeared. She said they were standing beside a yellow car, holding bows and arrows. They tried to get her attention. After I read that police report, I kept thinking about that girl, what she saw, how she felt, and how she got away. She was the one person who had some idea of what my brother had encountered in his last moments. Then, out of the blue, just last year, I got a chance to talk with her.
1: I guess not everybody's lucky enough to be the person that got away.
2: I'm David Kushner, and this is Alligator Candy. Britta McKenna is a grandmother living in Chicago. She read my memoir about John and emailed me.
1: Reading your jacket cover, and knowing there was a four-year-old brother that got left on the curb, I could see you just waiting. In
2: 1973, Britta was 12, and she lived near us in Tampa. Her father happened to work at the same university as my dad, but we didn't know her family. Britta was a competitive swimmer on a strict schedule. When she had free time, she loved taking off on her bike. I had a three speed.
1: It was red. It's one way to get a breeze down in the humid Tampa summers. And I usually had a purpose when I was on my bike, whether it was the candy store or a friend or to go meet somebody in a park. It was always happy. So there was this adventure, and the wheels of a bicycle took me there.
2: Like a lot of kids in our neighborhood, Britta would bike through the woods to the 7-Eleven to buy candy. Her favorite was bit of Honey.
1: The taste is obviously sweet and nutty, and has a little bit of maybe molasses to it. The part that I like is it lasts a really long time and you have to make a choice. Do you chew it and have it get stuck in your teeth or do you just suck on it and enjoy it for a very long time?
2: A few weeks before my brother disappeared, Britta and her friend headed to the 7-Eleven. They turned off the main road and pedaled down the dirt trail into the forest. They rode over the palm fronds, past the fallen oranges. Britta and her friend got their bit of honey and were eating it as they walked their bikes back home through the woods. That's when Britta noticed the yellow car.
1: And in the distance on the right, I could see two figures, very colorful, moving about in the distance, which caught my eye.
2: They were dressed in some kind of archery outfits. She thought they looked like Robin Hood.
1: As I got closer, I noticed that one of them had a bow and arrow. So I asked them what they were doing. Because it seemed odd to me that they would be dressed up like Halloween, although it was just before Halloween, but with bows and arrows. And so they said, well, we're shooting little animals. Do you want to come see? And then at that point, I realize, I don't think I want to see.
2: Britta froze, then turned to her friend and urgently told her, Ride like the wind. Britta didn't know what to make of the strange men. A few weeks later, a police officer came to her school to ask the kids questions about the woods in the 7-Eleven.
1: I shared the story about riding through the woods. I described the car and the men that I saw, what they were wearing, what they looked like.
2: Soon after, she saw a report on TV about two men being arrested for my brother's murder.
1: And I remember looking at the television, looking up and seeing the pictures of the two men.
2: The same two men she'd met in the woods.
1: It's kind of like, that's the memory I have of that day. And it just kind of freezes for me.
2: And so whatever kind of trauma you carried around wasn't even something you were really cognizant of until, until those many years later.
1: I knew what had happened, but it was kind of surreal, and I don't think I played the what if. I think I filed it away.
2: I get what she means. Our experiences are so different, but Britta and I both felt so isolated and silenced by our trauma. I think that's a common experience for a lot of people. For Britta and for me, we couldn't keep quiet forever. Recently, she discovered a letter that her mother had written to a friend back when John disappeared. Reading it got Britta thinking about that encounter in the woods, about what could have happened. This is page three.
1: There has not been all glory since our move to Florida.
2: Her mother wrote about my brother's death, about the statement Britta gave to the police at her school.
1: One day, when Jonathan was still missing, the police interviewed each busload of school children one by one, and Britta told them how she and her girlfriend went to the same convenience store three weeks before, down the same wooded path, on their way back there. There was a man standing in the path, pointing a large hunting arrow at them. When I read from my mom's words, it was Mm. very real.
2: (laughs) Britta's mom wrote about how Britta recognized the men who murdered my brother.
1: She correctly identified Johnny Paul Witt and Gary Tillman's small yellow sports car. Witt was sentenced to death, and Tillman's case is being tried now. Mm. In my mom's words.
2: Mm. It felt so powerful and moving to talk with Britta. We were two strangers with a profound connection. She's the girl who got away. I'm the boy whose brother didn't. We've both been struggling with the aftermath, trying to fill in the missing pieces of our stories. But somehow now, even in this one conversation, we helped each other along the way. The memory of John going to get me snappy gator gum makes me feel so close to him. For Britta, memories are tied up in the taste of bitter Honey. And bitter Honey now holds a special place in my memory, too. Because weirdly, the same day I talked with Britta, a package of Bitta Honey randomly showed up at my house. It was a gift included in a box of audio cables that I got to record this podcast. When I called my mom to tell her about Britta and about the candy, she told me there was even more to the story. That same day, she got a catalog in the mail. It had old-timey products, baseball cards, vintage clocks, that sort of thing. When she flipped to the candy page... One picture got her most nostalgic of all. The yellow, red, and blue wrapper. Her favorite candy when she was young. Bit of Honey. Maybe it was all just coincidence. But as I held that package of Bit of Honey, it kind of felt like I finally got the candy from my brother. 50 years later. Even if it was just in my imagination, it was sweet. People often tell me how, even after all these decades, John's story continues to shape them. S.B. Ball. John's psychologist, told me that he never again felt as safe letting his own kids outside. He told me that an October doesn't go by without him thinking about my brother. Daniel Ruth, the reporter who covered my brother's disappearance, told me about being haunted by this story and by the stories like it that didn't get covered, particularly the stories of missing black kids that editors around the country sometimes deemed unnewsworthy. More and more, I see how far-reaching trauma and loss can be. I think of it like throwing a rock in a pond. My family took a direct hit, but the ripples spread across the town and across generations. I feel my brother's presence now more than ever. So does the rest of my family. Years ago, Andy wrote a song about John. But after talking with me and my mom for this podcast, he decided to produce it. It's called, I Will Be Your Memory.
0: To remember and to say I won't forget I'll be your memory
2: All these conversations have helped Andy and me get back in touch with John's life at last and not just his death. For the first time in decades, Andy has been putting up more pictures of John around his house. And I promise you today
0: From the bottom of my heart You will always Be your memory. Okay, so it's Sunday, January Nineteenth. Nineteenth. For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Arya fell hard. I opened the door.
1: There was a woman standing there. And she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz. And I said, Oh, you better come in.
0: In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai. And then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone? This is a crazy room. Mm. This is um, dad's particular place. Never. It is not a shrine.
2: Well, it's pretty much how he left it with all this stuff. Still, uh, all the I books mean, and tchotchkes the, and things. Um, Earlier this year, I visited my mom in Tampa. She still lives in the same house by the woods. It's changed since I was a kid. The shag carpets that John and I played on are long gone. So is the flowered wallpaper in the kitchen. Over her desk in John's old room, my mom has a big yellow button. Enjoy life, it reads. This is not a dress rehearsal. While I'm there, I work in the room that was my dad's office.
0: books, a lot of pictures, pictures. I had some pictures framed of his father. A lot of nostalgia in this room.
2: On this trip, I noticed something new. More photos of John were around the house. John alone. John and me and Andy. John on his bike. All of our conversations lately inspired my mom to go through pictures of John that she'd filed away after he died.
0: I had manila envelopes for each year. Yeah. You know, and then put them somewhere. In fact, I couldn't find them for a long time. I couldn't find the albums. Yeah. His death loomed. Over everything for so long. And to be able to retrieve these pictures that I put together during my extreme grief, but then to po- find them and put them into a whole new e- context of his life. It was so
2: positive. Yeah. She showed me a couple photo albums that she made about John. Uh, yeah.
0: Can I read it?
2: Yeah. What does it say? Yeah,
0: Jonathan, his life. This is what I wanted. I didn't want his death. This is his life. Yeah. So it's a whole story about Oh,
2: him. my God. I know. Oh, this is so sweet.
0: See what he's doing there? Look at this. Yeah. With his hand like this, and yeah. then my father.
2: He would put his hand on his face like Grandpa would.
0: Yes, very much so. Similar
2: mannerisms.
0: Mm-hmm, mannerisms.
2: There are photos of him as a baby with my parents, with Andy dressed up as cowboys, with me shortly after I was born. One of my favorites is a shot of him at summer camp. He's shirtless and scrappy and precociously flipping off the photographer. Sitting there together, it felt so sweet just to be able to talk about my brother as a kid who lived, as someone we loved, who loved us back. And my mom found more than photos. She found an old audio tape, one she made a year or two after John died. It's her at the piano, playing a song she improvised for John, pouring out her emotions about his life and death. I'd never heard it before. In the seventies and eighties, my mother and father organized support groups to help grieving families feel less alone. These days, I'm trying to follow their example.
0: What was your brother's name
2: who died? His name was John, it was Jonathan. I called him John. I'm on the board of directors of Good Grief. It's an organization that helps children who are grieving in their families. With so many deaths from the coronavirus, this has become even more necessary. The kids in Good Grief are a lot like Britta and I were when we were younger, grappling with death and loss and trying to figure out how to talk about it. In writing workshops I've led at Good Grief, I help the kids capture memories of their loved ones, like Brianna's memories of her grandfather.
1: I remember his brown slippers. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: he always had like three blankets on his bed, mm-hmm. and um, he had his walls were tan, mm-hmm.
1: like a color.
2: When I was four, I had so few memories of John, but I held on to what I could. For Abijah, her grandmother's hats hold special meaning.
0: There was a hat on the wall that we got for her. Mm-hmm. Um, there was always jewelry because she always won them at bingo for
2: us. <laughs> reliving my family's story for this podcast has not been easy the loss and trauma and grief that stuff never goes away but I hope that sharing my story can in some small way help other people that it can help normalize what doesn't feel normal at all. Lately, I feel a lot more connected with John. I feel it more than ever, and in ways that surprise me. After talking with Britta for the podcast that afternoon, I was needing some air. So I went downstairs and hopped on my bike. It was a bright fall afternoon, crisp and clean, the sunlight filtering through the few clouds overhead. As I rode into the woods, I just couldn't help thinking how amazing everything looked, and how great it felt to be out here alone, listening to music on my headphones and blurring past the trees. I biked through a field, across a road, and down a path by a river. Then darker clouds suddenly started rolling in. The wind was picking up. I could see the lightning getting closer. And then everything was more real than real. The moment was more than the moment. I started thinking about my brother. Feeling how happy he must have been in his final moments, riding back from the store with our candy. And then I got this powerful feeling that if I got struck by lightning right there, right then, I would go out in such an indelible moment of happiness and meaning, a last fantastic bike ride, just like it was for John. After all this time and work, I can do more than just see my brother as a kid. I can let myself imagine who he might be now. Maybe he'd be tall like my mother's father, with wavy red hair. He'd be funny, I think. Easygoing and good-natured. And like Andy, he wouldn't just be my big brother. He'd be my friend. The memory of my final moments with John is still so vivid, but I see it a bit differently now. He's there on his old red bike in his sleeveless brown shirt and cut off jean shorts, eager to take off into the thicket of cypress and palm trees across the street. And I'm standing there beside him, but I'm my age now, his little brother, fully grown. I know that while his death was so tragic, he was never more alive than his very last ride. He was a boy on a bike alone and independent racing through the woods with candy in his basket the wind was in his face he was pedaling fast he was heading home he was loved and he was free This episode was produced by James T. Green, with production support from Alex and John Laughlin. Our executive editor is Sarah Nix. Lacey Roberts is our managing producer. Executive producing by me, David Kushner, along with Greta Cohn and Emmy Rossum. Sound design by James T. Green and Eli Cohn and Nocturnal Sound. Rick Kwan is our mix engineer. Special thanks to Jess Shane and Debbie Daughtry. Our USG audio team includes Jessica Grimshaw, Josh Block, Jennifer Sears, and Daniel Welsh. The song, I Will Be Your Memory, was written and produced by my brother, Andy Kushner. This podcast was inspired by my memoir, Alligator Candy. I'd like to thank my family and friends and everyone who helped create this podcast. I'd also like to thank Good Grief for all the work they do. To learn more about Good Grief and support their efforts, please visit good-grief.org. That's good-grief.org. This is a USG Audio podcast in collaboration with Transmitter Media. For more information, go to our website, usgaudio.com.